So we're going to be in Revelation 10 this morning. This is a tricky, tricky text, as if the others haven't been. But this one's especially tricky. So um, let me just preface it by saying a couple of things. One is there's, there are several maybes this morning. You'll hear that word come out of my mouth. Maybe, probably this means this, all right? Um, and I'll try to be humble about those parts. I'll try. But the parts that I'm sure about, I'll put a lot of weight on, all right? That's kind of how I'm going to approach it. That's how I would encourage you to approach Scripture in general. The stuff you don't understand, be humble about, and just kind of submit yourself to the lack of understanding, right? And just say, God, maybe one day you'll help me figure this one out. might be after I'm dead. Um, Or maybe it'll be after I learn more or get better at interpreting my Bible or whatever it is. I don't know about you, but... I've been reading my Bible for a very long time, and I'm just now figuring out stuff that was hard for me just 10 years ago. And I'm hoping that pattern will continue, (laughs) right? And so that's how this is going to be this morning. There's a few parts here that are um, just hard to get. And by the way, I should say, after saying that, which is I don't believe the book of Revelation is that hard to understand. 75 to 90% of it. I think if you just have a few keys of interpretation, you can get a lot out of it. I think it's a myth, and it's a a bad one. It's a bad lie that the church has been sold about the book of Revelation. I've said this a few times already, that it's, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to try. It's the least read book of the Bible, I'm convinced. And it's the most written about, interestingly enough, which is fascinating to me, but it's, most people have never read it, okay? And so... Don't believe that, but I will confess that this, this particular section is pretty, pretty tricky, all right? So let's start with this. Um, let's talk about structure for a minute, because this is where a lot of people get confused. And so I decided to kind of, kind of simply diagram it out so you can see how this works. Remember, we're looking at seals, trumpets, and then later bowls. Each one of these is a category of seven judgments, Okay. And it's got a really neat, tidy structure if you look at it in outline, right? And so first we did, we did the seals. We've already done that um, a few weeks ago. You had seal one, two, three, four, five, six. And then and it's kind of an aside, an interlude that seems sort of disconnected from the rest of it. You expected the seventh seal, and instead you get a chapter or two of other stuff. And then you get the seventh seal, all right? And then now we have the trumpets, which is uh, uh, repeating over the same time period, just from a different perspective, right? Trumpet one, two, three, four, and then we had underneath four, we had the first woe, then the second woe, which is the fifth trumpet. It makes sense when you read it, right? And then the sixth trumpet, which is also the third woe, not like woe, but woe as in scary, right? Then the same thing, an interlude, where you would expect trumpet number seven, you get an interlude. And if you're reading along and you're kind of getting used to this structure, everybody does it when you read. You you build a structure in your head of what you think is coming next. And all of a sudden, you don't get what you expect. People get very confused. All right? So think of this like letter G in your notes. The interlude is kind of a parenthesis. It is not disconnected, but it's an aside. Like, 
People, when they're telling a story and you get annoyed with them, typically it's my wife. We call it spider webbing, right? Where you're telling a story and you say, you know that guy, Bill, from blah, 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 10 years ago? You're like, I think I know who that is. He said, well, we were going to da, 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 And then you jump from, from Bill 10 years ago and you, to another story where some very barely related to Bill. And, then, and you never get back around to the original story, right? And you're trying to hold all these things in your head, all these parentheses, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Spider webbing. This is a very short spider web. It goes out, and we talk about this other stuff, and we come back to the trumpets, all right? So don't be confused by that. All right. To confuse you more, I am not going to begin with Revelation. I'm going to begin with Daniel, okay? It will make sense in a minute. So immediately, we're going to be in Daniel 12 for just a minute. And the reason for that is the scripture in Revelation is an allusion to this, what Daniel prophesied, okay? And in order to really understand what's being talked about in Revelation, we've got to kind of go back to Daniel, okay? And I could summarize it for you, but I think it's important sometimes for you to see the actual scriptures and how they link together like a chain, okay, across thousands of years. That's a powerful thing for you to see, all right? So we're going to be in Daniel 12. Verses 5 to 9. It says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. So he's having this vision of a stream, and there's two people standing on either side. Verse 6, And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, all right, so now there's a third person hovering over the stream. He asked, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. Picture it. And swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. That's about, that just means about three and a half years, right? And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Raise your hand if you feel that way. Right? I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So God explains nothing of this to Daniel. Daniel has this vision, and it's weird, okay? Think it's, just try to put yourself in Daniel's shoes for a minute. God shows you this stream, and it's nice, and then there's a guy here and a guy over there, and then Jesus, obviously, wearing linen, floating above the stream, and he's talking to Daniel, and Daniel says, what does this mean? Daniel's confused, like you are, and like I am, and he says, God, what does this mean? What's this about? When's this going to happen? And God doesn't go, let me, let me explain it to you. He just says, just close it up, seal it up, it's not for you, it's for later. I won't explain it to you. We humans do not like not understanding things. It's annoying. It's like cutting a movie off right before the end. Right before everything's explained, the power goes out. And you're sitting there 
and there's this ache inside, right? It's just, well, I just want to know what, it, what happens, right? This is Daniel, but Daniel never knows what happens. Daniel lives the rest of his life and dies not knowing what this means. He just writes it down as he was told and says, I don't know, and shrugs his shoulders, right? I think the reason for this is that what God is saying to Daniel and to Daniel's generation is this is a prophecy about the end of times, the times we're living in. He's saying this is for you to share and to write down, but it's not the fulfillment of it. It's not going to happen in your lifetime. This is how God does, communicates this. All right. Now we go to Revelation chapter 10. Keep all that imagery in your head because it will be repeated right here. So fast forward from Daniel to the apostle John. John's vision is in verses 1 through 7. It says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But then in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. A lot of imagery there, isn't it? And behold, we saw what did not understand. Right? So let's just work our way through some of these images here. Some, are, some I'm confident about, some I'm not, all right? One I'm confident about is this mighty angel. It's pretty clear that this is Jesus, okay? The language here harkens back to every other image we've seen of Jesus in Revelation, all right? His voice is like thunder, all right? All these, all this image. It's obvious that this is Jesus, right? He straddles the land and sea, and when he speaks, it releases seven thunders. And the seven thunders have been argued about for a long time. Thunder is almost always a metaphor for judgment in the Bible. It's not a good thing. Right? There being seven fits perfectly in the pattern we have come to expect thus far in Revelation, right? We've seen seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls are coming later. All of them speak of Judgment over the church age, right? From the time of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to his second coming, right? But it's hard to tell if this, these seven new judgments are in addition to the seals, trumpets, and bowls, or if it's just talking about those seals, trumpets, and bowls, right? I lean towards the idea that the seven thunders refer to the final phase of judgment at the end of the age, that's what I think, but that's maybe, right? What I do know is that Jesus conceals. He tells John, don't write it down. Don't, in other words, seal it up, Daniel. It's not for you. The fulfillment of this, you're not going to see. This is for them somewhere in the future. 
And then in verse 4 through 7, you see he shows this to John, but tells him to not, not to give it, meaning this is not for you now. He tells him that it will be for the time when the seventh trumpet is sounded. That's when it's going to happen. And we did the trumpets last week. Uh, if you remember this, if you have a brain for such things, but the seventh trumpet is just Jesus' return. It's the end. It's the final thing. It's when Jesus shows up, touches down, and it's all wrapped up. And we are with him. Those who are believers are super happy. Those who are not are super sad, right? That moment is the seventh trumpet. So whatever these seven thunders are, they are sealed up to be, we'll know what they are, what he's talking about when Jesus comes back. That's all he's telling you. And I am suspicious of anyone who says, I've worked it out. All right? Because you are immediately in the land of conjecture at that point. Because Jesus has specifically said, this is not for you. So you're saying, I know something John doesn't. That's not in the Bible. By definition, it's extra biblical guessing. All right? And it's fun to guess. Okay? Have a cup of coffee with a friend and guess. It's a lot of fun. Just don't say it's authoritative like the other stuff, all right? That's where I'm at on that. So this is why I think the seven thunders refer to a final season of judgment because he ties it to that seventh trumpet. Um, All of this is a prophetic allusion to Daniel 12, which we just read, where Daniel also sees Jesus bringing the end to a close, but Daniel's told it's not for now. And then we have John, who is closer to that, but it's still not for him to know. And if you compare Revelation 10 um, with Daniel 12, the only thing missing are the two witnesses, which come next in Revelation. We'll do that next week. In Daniel, we have the witness on one side of the river, another witness on the other side. And in Revelation 11, we have two witnesses, so we'll talk about those next week. Um, The other thing we see next week is the three-and-a-half-year timetable, which is interesting. We'll see that next week, too. So all that matches up with Daniel 12. It's amazing. So that's just a big fat maybe, all right? Now into the parts that I'm more confident in, okay? Verses 8 through 10. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is opened in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it, eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Isn't this bizarre? I mean, it just is. Let's just admit that for a minute. This is bizarre. (laughs) Giant angel, who's Jesus, holding a scroll a little scroll, and you're looking at it, and the angel, the voice out of heaven, maybe the father, says, go take it, do what he says with it. Jesus says, here you go, eat it. So now you're stuffing the scroll and eating it, and in the mouth it's sweet, delicious like honey, which is biblical language for like the best tasting thing ever, okay? But once you swallow it down, it's bitter. It's a combination of two things. What in the world? Some people say that that scroll is the same scroll as we saw way back at the beginning of Revelation. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to the last 15 weeks of sermons. Um, 
You can go back and listen to that. I don't think it's the same scroll that's in the hand of the Father because he distinguishes it here a couple, several times by saying little scroll. I think it's different. All right? So I'm going to let Scripture tell us what it means. All right? Let's read some verses. First, Deuteronomy 8, 3. And he humbled you and let your, you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So Jeremiah says, I ate your words. And then the, the clincher, Ezekiel 2, Ezekiel 2, 8 through chapter 3, verse 3. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Hello. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. <clears throat> eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this, gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and was in my mouth, what? As sweet as honey. Isn't that fun? Still don't know what it means. I'll tell you what it means. You put all these scriptures together, the scroll, the little scroll is just the word of God. It's what God says. It's the word of God. What is the word of God? What is our go-to place for knowing what the word of God is? The Bible, right? What about this sweet and bitter thing? Revelation adds to the Ezekiel 2 imagery one thing, everything else is one-to-one, -one, except for this bitter-in-my-stomach part. So you eat God's Word, and in your mouth it's delicious. And then it gets in your, you swallow it down, and there's a bitterness to it. This is what the return of Christ is going to be like. And this is what it's like for us to ponder it now, I think. It'll be sweet and joyful and wonderful for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are Christians, believers. We can't wait. Just thinking about Jesus coming back is a wonderful thought. I think more and more, this is what is studying Revelation is producing in my mind and heart. It's just constantly going, come on, let's go. Today, be great, right? There's not a downside to Jesus coming back. Can't wait. But then, what do you start to think about? You start to think about people that don't know him. Right? You start to think about neighbors, coworkers, friends, family members, loved ones who are not under his blessing, but they're under his wrath. And that is a bitter thought. To ponder that and to think about that that's why I often say the day of Jesus' return will be a great and terrible day. It'll be the greatest day and the most terrible day. 
That's why it's considered the seventh trumpet, the seventh judgment is the return of Christ. Because for those who are not in him, it is a judgment. So it's sweet and bitter. I think it's a beautiful description of what it's like to be a Christian and to ponder and to read the book of Revelation. And I think about Jesus coming back. It's a bitter and a mournful thing to contemplate as well as a joyful thing. But I think the main point here is to give us instructions because these judgments have been very clearly directed at non-believers. And the point of which is not only God's justice, but also to call those in out of his judgment into his blessing. Right? But then what do we do? Those of us who are already kind of in the house. This is, the big, this is one of the first instructions we get, which is eat the word. If you want to live through the desert, like the Israelites, you've got to eat the manna. If you want to be nourished in a dry land, in a dry place where there is no spiritual nourishment, only spiritual death, how do you survive? You survive by eating the word. If you don't eat, you will starve and die spiritually. It's also true physically. <laughs> Think it's a great metaphor. Your body has been designed to require food in order to live. It's how God made your body. It's how he created you. Long before death, you will be ravenously hungry. So long before you die, I don't, know, it's like, I don't know how many days it is, but it's quite a few days you can go without actual food. You have to drink water, but if you're drinking water, you can go quite a while without food. So before you die, it's, it's a horrible way to go. You're just ravenously hungry. It's all you can think about. It hurts to be that hungry. And you would eat almost anything to get rid of that feeling because it's an instinctive, subconscious drive for survival. The desire to eat when you're hungry. Yet why do we think we can actually be alive spiritually and not eat the word? This is how God frames the study of his word. Not as a nice add-on, not as a snack, not as dessert, not as a nice bonus when you're discouraged to help you be encouraged, not as something you do just when you have to, you know, you have some responsibility to teach somebody else, but as your way of surviving. And when you don't get it, there's a spiritual starvation that happens. And you become so hungry for it that you'll do anything to get it. That's how it should be with us. So I thought I'd have a little fun with the metaphor. If we survive spiritually by eating the word, maybe there are some spiritual eating disorders we could talk about. Maybe you'll find yourself in one or, one or more of these. How about picky eaters? I won't name names, but some of my children are picky eaters. You only eat what you like. You pick and choose the parts of the Bible that they like or feel good about and just leave the rest for the dog to eat off the, off the plate or throw under the table or hide underneath something else in your plate so your mom won't see that you didn't eat your peas. I'm not speaking from experience. Some people hypothetically might do that kind of thing. 
So you just sort of pick and choose the bits that you like. What about stress eaters? You only consume God's word when life is hard and you're looking for answers to your problem. Stress eaters. Don't raise your hand. I won't ask. Binge eaters. You eat in fits and starts but never consistently. You starve for long periods of time and then you gorge yourself for one day or two days and then you're back to your normal diet of sand in the desert. One of the images I've been thinking about is from a funny movie, The Three Amigos. Anybody see that movie before? It's kind of old. Chevy Chase is in it. They're going on three horses riding through the desert and they're thirsty and they've all run out of water in their canteens. I'm pretty sure it's Chevy Chase that has plenty of water so they're all and one guy takes his canteen and just sand comes out into his mouth. And then Chevy Chase pulls out his canteen and he's just guggling, water spilling down. And then he tosses his canteen half full into the sand and it's spilling out on the sand. And he pulls out lipstick or chapstick and just, you know, does this number and then throws it. And they're all just like, Whoa. that's the image I get what it means to eat the word in the desert versus starving. Fast food eaters only consume God's word from devotionals written by other people, but rarely actually read their Bibles beyond one or two verses at a time. You've got a stack full of devotionals at home, but you never actually crack your Bible open for yourself. You can survive that way, I guess. You'll get a little bloated. <laughs> How far do we take this metaphor? I don't know. The last one I thought of was the spoon-fed. This is one Paul talks about. They only consume the word when it's fed to them, and they have not been willing to feed themselves. The way Paul puts it is you're just living on milk, spiritual milk like babies and not maturing to eat meat to feed yourself. So if any of these describes you, then you need to understand that God loves you and wants you to be nourished by him. This is not about you earning some kind of place with God and, and just making him happy because he's already happy with you. It's why he's feeding you this wonderful meal. If he didn't love you and want to bless you, he would not have fed you something wonderful. He would let you starve. Right? It's not about you going, oh, I'm such a bad Christian. I hope nobody knows that I'm all of these. I have all these spiritual eating disorders. Right? It just shifts back and forth between, you know, and you're kind of going, oh, it's the wrong perspective. This is like, like when my wife comes home from a long day at work and she says, I'll cook dinner tonight. And she makes this amazing meal that even if I were to cook the same recipe and follow it exactly, there's something missing. And it's, we all know what it is it's love right? Love is that little something in there that just makes you feel loved, right? And even if it's not your favorite meal, you feel loved by it, right? Even if I don't understand what's in it or want to know what's in it, right? I still feel love because she made it for me. This is, this is what it's like to read the words, what it should be. Even if you don't understand it, 
Even if you don't get it, even if you're like, what's that? Right? And you feel kind of maybe convicted or confused like Daniel. Whatever it is, it's still made by God with love for you. He is not standing there shoving it down your mouth going, eat it and you'll like it. He's saying, look what I made. I spoke to you a lot. I said a lot of things to you. I have said a lot of things, really good things, important things, and you need this to survive. This is manna. This is God providing food in the desert for you to live on. And yet we turn it into this thing that it's not. Like he's handing you like Melba toast. Ooh. Maybe you like Melba toast. <laughs> Fried bread. That was my, when I was in England, that was, my, that was the most disgusting thing. You just take a piece of bread and throw it in a fryer. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> it's like a toaster's not enough. You just got to fry. It's like this, uh, just what you imagine that is, is exactly what it tastes like. He's not handing you fried bread. He's handing you a good meal. And we get deceived into thinking it's not. So here's my advice to you. Well, first you need to know this. If you're not eating the word, you're starving. Not you might be. Not eventually you will be. But you, are, you really are starving spiritually. So just eat it. I tell my kids when they're being picky, just eat it. Stop asking questions. Well, what's this thing right here? I don't understand what that is. Is that something off the grill? Is that something you put in there on purpose? Is that a mushroom? What's in this? You're right. I'm not eating it until you explain it all to me. Just eat it. There's love in there. And eat all of it. You don't have to know everything that's in it. That will help you appreciate what you're eating. But what's most important is that you just eat it. I want you to know, understand everything that's in it. That will be great. And eventually you will. But it's not a requirement for you to read it. Just read it like you eat a meal. I'm hungry. I'm starving. And I'm going to eat it. That's how you start. And as you read and mature in your understanding... You'll eventually become a spiritual foodie that appreciates all the layers and nuance. You ever talk to somebody like that? They've just been like eating the word for forever. And they're like, oh, I taste coriander and a hint of lemon. Oh, is that lemon zest? Oh, yes, that was lemons from... The coast of California <laughs> during the rainy season. Hmm. Delicious. And you're like, how are you tasting all of that? Right? I just taste a salad or whatever it is you're eating. And you're like, I don't even know if it's a salad. I'm pretty sure I just, it's just food. I'm just eating it. I don't know what's going on. Right? And you feel like, how are you? What, if you keep reading, keep eating the word, that's what you start to taste more and more and see layers that you didn't see before. But there, there's no shortcut. There's just no shortcut to it. I wish there was. I wish there was, I wish there was a way to just be like instantly 
you understand everything. The Holy Spirit understands everything. And he is, for whatever reason, doles out that understanding in bits as we grow and mature into Christ's likeness. The only way to do it is by taking the food, sticking it in your mouth, chewing, and swallowing. It's the only way over and over and over again. I know a lot of us are in this Bible club, so I would suggest that as a step, right, if you're not already in it, if you're struggling with this. And to those of you who are in that group, let me just say, it is not a requirement to understand everything that's in your meal when you eat it. Just eat it, right? So being an eater of the word not only honors the one who spoke the word, but it is absolutely essential for life in these last days. You will starve if you don't eat the word. As we look at the witnesses, the two witnesses next week, we'll see that we're not called just to be silent in this age, but to bear witness to the reality of Christ. Jesus is gathering his sheep into his sheepfold. We're called to herald that good news to whoever will listen. But if you're not an eater of the word, how do you expect you to be able to give the word to other people? You can't. This is part of that process, right? It's not just for your nourishment, but it's so that you have nourishment to give to other people. So if you're wondering what Christians should be doing in these last days, it certainly at least begins with eating the word. And by last days, I mean right now. So if you've been struggling with this, then we begin, I think, with confession and repentance. What are we confessing? What are we repenting of? We're conf- confessing and repenting of taking what Jesus is feeding us and spitting it out as if it's disgusting. You're going, Phew, gross. I don't want it. I don't like it. Ew. Can I just have chicken nuggets for dinner? Can we just stop by McDonald's? Tell you what, I'll just watch this video on YouTube. That'll be enough. Just like eating McDonald's french fries for dinner. So don't spit out what God is feeding you. And so that's what we repent of, right? Jesus has made this beautiful, tasty meal. He's handed the scroll to you, this wonderful, beautiful thing, right? And he said, here, eat it. It's good. Tastes like honey. Yeah, it'll be bitter at times. You'll be convicted. You'll have to ponder things like, what about those who aren't in? And it'll motivate you to be a witness. There's bitterness there, but it is sweet as honey. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's absolutely right. That weird feeling of being at a funeral, especially of a believer. So we repent and we do not quit trying. I want to encourage those of you who have quit because you've been frustrated because you don't understand it. Because it's hard to read. It's hard to find time, maybe, to. And so you think it's just not going to work. Um, You wouldn't stop eating because it's hard to find time to eat. That's why fast food restaurants exist, right? Because no one does that. 
So if you're a Christian, you know, Christians don't do that. We don't go forever not eating because you're starving to hear from Jesus. And so I think I want to begin this morning, or and end, I should say, by just repenting together. And if you don't, listen, if this is not a problem for you, because I know it's not for some of you, all right, then don't do a fake confession and fake repentance just because everybody's doing it. That's, that's weird. Don't do that. But if, if this is true of you, right, that you have not been treating the word of God as though it's a good thing from Jesus, but as though it's a thing that's gross, that you don't want to eat, then I want to, let's just repent together, and then I want to pray that the Holy Spirit, who is the author and revealer of the Word of God, that He would create in us a spiritual hunger that can only be satisfied by opening this thing up and eating, right? That's what I want to pray for um, after we, you look like you want to say something. Yeah. I can start praying Certainly. Yeah. You want to come grab the mic and I think I just found out yesterday that uh one percent of the population of Iran are uh, self proclaimed Christians. So um, in, in, you know, it's, it's li- as you would expect in uh, a country that's a theocracy like they have to be a, a Christian in Iran. Um, but Father, we just come before you on behalf of our brothers and sisters and everyone who names your name everyone who identifies with your people in Iran right now, Lord. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that your hand is on them, that you have not forgotten about them. Lord, but we just pray, we just pray that you would give them freedom to worship you. Lord God, that you would give them spiritual power and authority, Lord God, to to change the climate of that place. Mm. Lord, we pray that, that you would strengthen all the believers. And Lord, if there are any that identify as Christian that don't, for some reason, don't even really know you, Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself to them, Lord God. Lord, we pray you'd strengthen them, Lord God. We pray that you would make the word available to them, Lord God, that you would fill them up with your scriptures and knowledge of the gospel and make them full of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Lord, and show us what we can do and how we can pray and what we can give to help these. In Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand up together? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us for preserving that word so that we could have it. God, we are so blessed in this country with so many hundreds of translations and different ways to eat your word. It is the greatest sign of our riches is that we have the word 
in so many forms. It is the ultimate luxury. Lord, help us to not take it for granted. God, we confess this morning that we have we have not honored you by honoring your word. We have often not seen it as the good meal. We've allowed our frustration at not understanding things to keep us from it. We've allowed other priorities and desires to compete over time eating your word. We have chosen so many other things to eat and to consume in our world over eating your word. God, we confess this to you and we repent. We ask you to forgive us. God, we want to be healthy eaters. And so God, as Jesus extends his hand holding the scroll to us, God, this morning, once again, we take it from his hand and we receive it as a gift that is good for us, as a meal that nourishes our spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask you, author of the word, would you open it up to us? Would you make us hungry for you? Starving. God, that not a day would go by that we don't have a nagging, deep longing to just get another bite of your word. God, that we would be voracious eaters, that our appetite would increase and that our capacity to understand would increase. God, I pray for those here that struggle just with just basic reading comprehension and their, their frustration is higher than maybe the rest of us. God, I pray that you would help them to grow quickly even in their in their minds, that there would be new connections made, new muscles grown and strengthened in their mind to be able to read and understand even better. God, I pray for anyone with learning disabilities. God, that you would help them. God, that you would heal them right now. God, I pray for anyone who suffers from uh, just intense demonic resistance every time they open their Bible. God, that you would protect them right now, that the enemy would flee. We resist the devil in the name of Jesus. We resist the devil in the name of Jesus. We say you must flee every person in this room, that when they sit down to eat the word, you are not allowed to interfere. We take authority over that in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask you to revive in us a hunger for this. God, we pray your blessing on that Bible club. God, as we read the word together, God, would you make this a moment in all of our lives that is significant, like a marker put in the sand that we remember. That's when God made me hungry again for him. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.